All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Job. And we're going to jump into round two today. Matthias, do I have a clicker, bud? Just when you get a second, that'd be great. Thank you. While he's doing that, um, round two starts in chapter 15. If you want to turn to Job 15, please. That's what we're, we're going to start today. By the way, um, we kind of ran out of time last time. Um, just wanted to let you know, um, in your notes last week, uh, on we talked about anger at God. Remember that? Um, there's a little footnote in your notes of a little book by Robert Jones. Uh, Robert Jones, who's a um, professor out at Southeastern Baptist Seminary, and uh, he wrote a little booklet called Angry at God, and it's in our little literature rack out there. It's probably the best concise resource that we've come across on the subject and uh, would commend that to you for further reading and interest there. Um, there was a whole bunch of stuff that he mentioned that um, could have made its way here. Thank you. And um, just had to be cut out for sake of time. So I would commend that resource to you. Uh, Robert Jones, Anger, or it's called Angry at God, question mark. Um, and it's a little booklet out there. Okay, well, before we jump into round two... Um, because all of you are alert and awake and just chomping at the bit to participate this morning. Some of you may need to go get some coffee next door. Um, what I want to do as we come into round two, let's, let's think together, what are some of the themes that we... Oh, there it is. Already up there. Hmm. Something happened to our screen. We'll, we'll fix that later on. Um, what are some of the themes that you saw in round one? And by round one, remember, the, the dialogue section of the book of Job takes place at, in, in three rounds. Uh, uh, Eliphaz speaks, then Zophar speaks, then Bildad speaks one time, right? And then they do it all over again, and then they do it all over again, except uh, Bildad punts on the third round. And um, so there's three circles of dialogue, if you will, and then Job responds after each one of his friends has a chance to talk. And uh, so thinking about that first round, Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, and Job responded. Basically the section we've been in for the last couple of months. What are some things that resonate in your mind that really stick out that uh, was a, a point that we talked about in here or something that would really impacted you as you read? Let's just get some themes on the board here from round one. Take it away. The ushers will be coming by to pass out coffee for... Uh, no. Go ahead. The, uh, the uh, I don't know how to express this as a theme. Um, that somehow um, suffering is a result of our own... Okay. ...punishment from God. Okay. We're going to call that retributive theology. Okay, and I'll just put here so you remember what that means. Um, sin brings suffering. It, it, it's sort of it's sort of the reap what you sow principle on steroids. Okay, it's it's the only thing that ever means anything. Okay, very good. Someone else. Themes, points, thoughts that you have from that first dialogue. What what what, do you, what sticks in your mind? I'm really interested to hear what. What has impacted you? 
I hope things have been impacting you. The unfairness of God. Okay, the unfairness of God. Or we might say injustice of God. Okay? And that has chiefly been the charge of whom? Job. Okay? The friends aren't saying God is unjust. The friends are saying God is just. That's why this is happening to you. Job's saying, no, God's being unfair. He's being um, uh, unjust. Okay? Someone else? Yes, Tony. Okay, loyalty to God. We saw that really in the first few chapters there, didn't we? Loyalty to God in terms of why we worship, right? Okay, someone else. Very good. Okay. Expand on that a little bit. Yeah. So we'll say lack of true empathy on the part of the friends. Very good. That's NANC counselor's exam question number seven, right, Terry? Is that for those of you taking the NANC exams? Someone else. Very good. What are some of the themes? What, what, what hits you? What, what has really impacted you as you've been, you've been reading Job, right? You're reading Job. This is the have you been reading your Bible test? Yes. Uh, Wes? Okay. Job's sarcasm. I'm going to say that Job is probably the most sarcastic character in Scripture. Not that, you know, all of us have done Bible studies on this. There's little places here and there. But once he gets a few chapters into that first round, you see in in the bitterness and the suffering and the depression and the anger, one of the ways that manifests itself in this very, very sarcastic attitude toward his friends. Okay, someone else? Yes, Ruby. Okay. Okay, yes, the bad counsel of the friends. And uh, what, this is interesting, uh, a couple of places the friends say... Here's our counsel, and here's why. What do they appeal to for their bad counsel? Do you remember? Their, their reasoning or their experience. Okay. Now, we're going to see this this morning. These three friends are probably in their 80s or in their 70s. There's a verse here we're going to look at. Job's probably in his 50s or 60s. The friends are probably in their 70s or 80s because the friends are going to say, Eliphaz is going to say that they are older than Job's father. Okay, so if you do the math, you know, there's a 20, 25 year difference between the two if you think about that. So, or a minimum, minimum, it could be more than that. 
Bad counsel based on experience. Yes, David. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Very good. Very good observation. Yeah, kind of, kind of a um, a footnote or an application of this. The the more they do this, the more they drive him away. And it's interesting. One of the yeah, <laughs> we we can think about you know, the real problem, they're driving them away from God. You notice, too, they're also, the more they push, the more Job distances himself from his friends, too. Um, when we come alongside and minister to people, um, one of the things we, we really have to ask is, uh, is, is what we're doing being effective? You know, is it helping? Is it, is it driving them to God? Or in our in our rightness, we're right, and we're going to counsel because we're right, we end up pushing them away from God, and we end up distancing ourselves. That's very important because at some point, at some point you have to ask yourself the question, is this a hill to die on? And am I, is, Does the Bible say this is worth jeopardizing the relationship? Okay? And I would suggest to you that there are very few situations, there are few, where the Bible says do this. If it costs you the relationship, it costs you the relationship. Most of the time, the Bible's going to make preserving that relationship more important than pushing the issue. Okay? And the, the situations I'm thinking of are like 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Yeah, any so-called brother who is living in blatant sin, you don't even eat with such a one. That's, that's a chance where you say, it doesn't matter about the relationship. Okay? You, you stand firm in your conviction. But most of the time, the Bible's going to counsel us to preserve that relationship. Okay, very good on the review. Yes, one more, Rich. Okay, the reason why we worship. Okay, he's worthy. Sure. Yeah, no, very good. Okay, very good. I came up with a few, and you guys overlapped and, and had some new ones here. Uh, just, just think with me together here, and there's a reason that we're doing this, okay? Um, Job's physical suffering. He talks about that over and over and over again, and we're going to see it again here. Um, we see that. We also see Job's internal suffering, don't we? His anger, his depression, uh, his, we mentioned it, his sarcasm. His, um, it's very obvious there's a war going on inside here. There's suffering going on inside. Um, that's important in thinking about people because suffering is not just something that happens from the outside. That's certainly true. But usually the most significant suffering in people is not the outside kind, it's the inside kind. And often they go together as well. So we see Job's internal suffering. Uh, what about the friend's retributive theology? One of you mentioned that. Uh, this idea that the reason all this calamity has happened in Job's life is because there's some sin in his life. And if Job would just uh, be honest with God and would confess his sin and go to him, these friends promise multiple times, Job, if you do that, God's going to restore your fortune, he's going to restore your health, he's going to get you your money back, all, all this sort of thing. Just go to God and confess whatever this hidden sin is. And remember, we saw it a few chapters ago, Job calls his friends on this, and he says, are you calling me a liar? Are you saying that I'm lying to you about some sin in my life. There's no sin in my life that I know about. And uh, we, we saw that, that confrontation there. 
What about this? The friend's ongoing charge that Job has sinned. Related to their theology, we see them pushing and pushing. And as David pointed out, the more they push, the more Job is backing away from his Savior. What about this? Job's accusation that God is being unjust. One of you mentioned that here. Um, The deeper Job gets into this, the more resolved he becomes that God is not doing the right thing. And finally, and this is very important, none of you mentioned this, but this this is a key issue as we go into round two. Job's hope is in his own righteousness by pleading and winning his case against God. The most consistent thing we see in terms of where is Job putting his hope? In chapters 1 and 2, he starts out pretty good, doesn't he? He says, you know, um, blessed be the name of the Lord. Whatever happens, I'm trusting my God, I'm worshiping my God. And then the second wave of Satan comes in and his wife loses it. And he says, you know, we need to accept good as well, or adversity as well as good from God. And it says Job continued to not sin. And he continues in that vein until the relentlessness and the, the chronic nature of his suffering um, strips away until what's left in chapter 2 into chapter 3 there, Job cries out. He can't take it any longer. He can't take the suffering. And he, he bursts forth um, in his depression and in his suffering. But the most consistent thing we've seen since that point is that Job's hope is that he's innocent, right? Do you agree with me on that? He keeps saying it over and over and over and over again. His hope is that he's innocent, that he's righteous, and he's holding out that the friends will see that, he's holding out that God will see that, and everything that he's doing relates back to this declaration that he is indeed righteous and innocent. And, and what, is his, what is his plan? Talk to me about his plan. What has he been wanting to do the last few chapters? Do you remember? Tony? Well, at points we've seen him where, where he thinks about taking his own life. Why doesn't he? This is very important. I'm glad you said that. Why doesn't he, Daryl? What's that? He wants to take God to court. See, the reason he doesn't kill himself is because if he kills himself, his hope dies with him. And his hope is that as he cries out to God, and we saw the script a couple weeks ago, he says, if I, if I had a, a court case with God, here's what I'd tell him. And his hope, his plan, is to bring God into court and to bring these charges against him and to show that God is in the wrong, that God is treating him unjustly and unfairly. Okay, That's where his hope is here. And, and it's very important that we see that because Job is not in the same place now that he was in the first couple of chapters of the book. In, that, in those chapters, he was in a very good place where he was trusting God and walking with him. But the suffering has, has steered him off course. And now he's in the ditch, trusting in himself and hoping for an opportunity to take God to court. Sheila. Just a question. Even though Job suffered and even though Job got totally discouraged and all of this, yes. he really never denied the sovereignty of God there, did he? Correct. Yeah, in fact, sovereignty is the one thing he always affirms. Which is funny, because remember I told you Rabbi Kushner's book, you know, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People? Remember that? His whole book is about Job, and his conclusion is God isn't sovereign. 
which is the one thing everybody in the book agrees on. So I'm like, and did he read the book or did he? I don't know. But, uh, but no, he never denies God's sovereignty. No, you're right. Uh, he just says in his sovereignty he's being unjust and unfair. Okay. So here's some themes. And why am I telling you that? Because we're going to see in round two, round two is chapters 15 all the way down through 22. I'm sorry, through 21. We're going to see all these same themes. It's part two. Okay? It's part two of the same stuff. I'll show you what I mean. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite responded, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Translate that into vernacular for me. Job, you're full of hot air. That's exactly what he's saying. The east wind was the wind that came out of the desert. Hot air. Um, and what, what, what is that? Uh-oh. What happened? Oh, there it is. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. The, the screen orientation is messed up, so I forgot that last one. Sinful words is the last blank there. Unkind, bitter, accusatory, sarcastic, defensive. And we see that here, right? Here's Eliphaz, right out of the gate. You're full of hot air, man. Well, that, that was nice. Right? That, was, that was kind. And is, isn't that true? Can we just pull over for a second? What, you ever at a time where you're, you're trying to help somebody? and they're not receiving what you're saying, and you're like, okay, so I'll come at it from this angle. I'll try this. I'll try. And you ever notice, the more we do that, the more careless we become with our words? To where, I mean, they've dropped the gloves, right? The sticks are down, the gloves are down, and they're pulling the jerseys over the heads here in their sarcasm and their unkindness toward one another. Um, I, I read that, and I can relate to that. Um, we see that there. Look at verse 9. He says, What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that we do not? So the, the friends are kind of saying, You're not telling us anything we don't know, right? Verse 10, Both the, the gray hair and the aged are among us, older than your father. Okay, so now they're pulling the we're older than you card. We have more experience than you. Verse 11, Are the consolations of God too small for you? Even the words spoken gently with you? And I wrote in the margin of my notes here, are they calling their counsel gentle words? Do you see that? So, so not only do you have this, this progression of sarcasm and bitterness and unkindness, you also have the blindness that comes with pride and sin. In other words, they think they're being unkind. or They think they're being kind. They think they're being gentle. But they're not. And, and I, you know, I, I think at points, whoever wrote Job... Uh, this, this is a very serious book, but there are little things like this that I read and go, are we supposed to laugh at that or cry? I'm not sure. Because it's very obvious to the reader that um, his assessment of his words is quite wrong. Verses 17 and following, I will tell you, listen to me, what I have seen I will declare, what wise men have told you. They're appealing to experience again, right? Verse 20, the wicked man rise uh, in pain all his days and... Uh, and numbered are the years stored up for the ruthless. Sounds of terror are in his ears, while at peace the destroyer comes upon him. What's he saying? People reap what they sow. 
suffering is stored up for the wicked. And it's the same old argument, Job. There's obviously something wrong in your life or this wouldn't happen to you. Um, Look at chapter 16. Job's going to respond. Mr. Sarcastic himself. Then Job answered, I have heard many such things. Sorry comforters are you all. Is there no limit to your windy words? He throws it right back at him, doesn't he? And then listen to this. Verse 4, I too could speak like you if I were in your place. Help me with that. What's he saying there? You ever had somebody in suffering that you're trying to help say that to you? They say, maybe they say, I appreciate what, they, what you're saying. Maybe they don't. But they say, you know what? You don't know what it's like. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying it's easy for you to say that. You're not going through this. And we're going to see this, and, and I hope you've, you've caught this in your reading of Job. The more Job talks the more irrational and and sort of, I don't even know how to say it, pinging he gets. It's like he's talking to the friends, then he's talking to himself, then he's talking to God, he's talking to the friends again, and he he starts pinging from subject to subject to person to person. And I've actually had in in my notes to have to start writing in the margin who's he speaking to. Because in one breath he's addressing the friends, in the next sentence he's addressing God, in the next sentence he appears to be reflecting on something himself. He's just, and maybe maybe you know what that's like if you've gone through suffering or maybe you've walked through somebody and the more they get in there, it's like the, the less coherent they become. Is that a good word for that? Kind of becoming a little more incoherent? So he starts off in verses 4 and following talking to the friends and then verse 7 he turns the corner and he speaks about God. Verse 6, talking to the friends, he says, If I speak, my pain is not lessened. And if I hold it back, what has left me? He's saying it doesn't matter if I say something or not. I'm still hurting. I'm still suffering. Verse 7, he turns the corner and he's talking to God now. But now he has exhausted me. You have laid waste all my company. You have shriveled me up. It has become a witness and my leanness rises up against me. It testifies to my face. His anger has torn me and hunted me down. He has gnashed at me with his teeth. My adversary glares at me. And by context, who is he calling his adversary? God. We've seen him there before, haven't we? Verse 10, he turns around to talk about, not talking to the friends, talking about the friends. Verse 10, they have gaped at me with their mouth. They have slapped me on the cheek with contempt. They have masked themselves against me. Here's a clue that you're not being successful in helping your friend in suffering. When he says to you, they are slapping me on the cheek with contempt. That's a clue. Verse 11, God hands me over to the ruffians and tosses me into the hands of the wicked. He's talking about his friends. Oh, thanks, God. Now you give me over to them. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. 
Yes. Yes. It is. I hadn't thought of it in that regard, but I do see an analogy there. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and, and Do you see all these same themes coming up here? Verse 12, I was at ease, but he shattered me. He has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as his target with his arrows surrounding me. Without mercy, he splits my kidneys open. He pours out my gall on the gra- Sorry, it's a little graphic here. He breaks through me with breach after breach. What's he saying? God is against him. God is being violent and opposing me. Where's his hope? Look at verse um, 17. Although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure, he says, I'm innocent. Why is God doing this to me? What's, what does he want to do? Verse 21. Oh, that a man might plead with God as a man with his neighbor. If only I could get a hearing with God. If only I could lay out my case before him. Then he would agree with me that what's going on is not right. Verse 17, he, he slumps back into that depressive state. In 17, he talks about being ready to die. His spirit is broken. His days are extinguished. He cries out again to God um, there. Bildad responds in verse 18. Notice this. We didn't mention this last week. Look at verse 4. Bildad says to Job, O you who tear yourself in your anger. Um, If there was any doubt that Job was angry in the midst of all this, it was very clear to Bildad that he was. Um. And Bildad goes off to say, look, the wicked aren't going to last. They're going to be punished. It's the same old argument. Okay. Now, there is something new in round two. Most of what we see in round two is review, and that's why we're just kind of hitting the high points here, and I'm giving you a, a sampling of that. There is something new, and it's in chapter 21. Job is going to show his friends by experience that their theology is wrong. You say, what do you mean? Job is going to show them very clearly that sometimes the wicked prosper and the innocent suffer. Now, is that true? Does the wicked prosper sometimes? Absolutely. Do the, do the innocent, do, the, uh, do they suffer? Sure they do. And, and Job, it's interesting, it's taken him this long to make this point. But he finally gets it in his mind and he says to his friends, look, you guys are all out to lunch. We all know examples of wicked people who prosper. And we all know examples of innocent people who don't. And he doesn't mention it here. He mentions it in another chapter. He talks about orphans and widows and he has his poor people. He has this big long list of people that are suffering and not necessarily because they've sinned. Um, Follow his argument here. Look at chapter 21. Uh, verse 1, Then Job answered and said, Listen carefully to my speech, and let this be your way of consolation. Bear with me that I may speak, and then after that you can mock. <laughs> there it is again, right? Being sarcastic. But listen to what he says. He says in verse 7, Why do the wicked still live? Ooh, that's a good question, isn't it? Why do the wicked still live? Continue on and also become very powerful. Verse 8, their descendants are established with them in their sight. Their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. There is 
Neither is the rod of God on them. His ox mates without fail. His cows calf and, and do not abort. They send forth their little ones like the flock. Their children skip about. They sing to the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity. And then they die. And Job says, tell me, why do the wicked enjoy such a prosperous life if your theology is true? You know, their cows have babies. Their kids are happy and play. They dance to music. They have wealth and stuff all the days of their life. And Job says, why? I thought the wicked were supposed to suffer. And the innocent were, both to ha- were supposed to have it good. And he picks this example. And if you read the whole chapter there, um, you see. Now, now watch where he goes with this, okay? Watch where he goes with this. Skip down to verse 23. He says, One dies in his full strength, being wholly at ease and satisfied. His sides are filled out with fat and the marrow of his bones moist, while another dies with a bitter soul, never even tasting anything good. Verse 26, mark it. Together they lie down in the dust and worms cover them. What's he saying? He's saying, Some people enjoy a very prosperous life. They have everything they want. And the wicked are often those people, and they die. Other people, they suffer their whole life. They never see anything good, and they too die. And he says, explain that, guys. Explain that. How does that fit into your theology? So he takes this example and challenges them. Do you see that? He's challenging their theology. We haven't seen this yet. We haven't seen this approach from Job. And this does two things. It means first that the friends are wrong in their evaluation of the situation. People don't always reap what they sow. That's not always true. And the second thing that this shows us is it furthers his premise that God acts unjustly by allowing the wicked to prosper and the innocent to suffer. He doesn't go there here, but he will. He will. By making this connection, he's adding one more Bit of evidence. This is exhibit C in the courtroom. See God, the wicked do prosper. The innocent do suffer. That's not right. Okay? So by using this example, he both shows that the friends are wrong and that God's wrong. Okay? That's the first of the new material we see in round two. But there's another point that we need to talk about. Look back at chapter 19. Probably the most famous verse in the whole book of Job. Look at chapter 19, verse... Actually, let's start in verse 11, where we left off a minute ago, okay? Talking about God now, okay? Um... Actually, let's back up. Let's back up to seven. Behold, I cry... No, six. Let's start with the six. Might as well do the whole chapter at this point, right? Look at six. Know then, know then, Job says, that God has wronged me. There it is. It's as plain as you get. And has closed his net about uh, around me. Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my ways so that I cannot pass. He has put darkness on my path. He has stripped my honor from me and removed the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. He has uprooted my hope like a tree. He has also kindled his anger against me and considered me 
as his enemy. And he goes on to talk about that. He's removed his brothers, verse 13. Verse 14, his relatives has failed. His intimate friends have been forgotten, uh, have forgotten him. Um, he's a foreigner in their sight. Verse 16, I called to my servant, but he doesn't answer. Remember, all his servants died, or most of them. Verse 17, my breath is offensive to my wife and loathsome to my own brothers. Even young children despise me. It reminds you of Jeremiah. Remember Jeremiah? He would walk down the streets and even the little kids, the little kids would come up making up these songs to mock the prophet of God. Even little kids despise Job. You remember how disfigured and, and ugly he was because of his disease. All my associates abhor me. Verse 19, those I love have turned against me. My my bone clings to my skin and my flesh. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Pity me, pity me, oh you my friends. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does? Verse 23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Interesting, that came true, didn't it? In the inspiration of Scripture. That with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. He wants everybody to know of his unjust situation. Then verse 25, he says this, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes shall see and not another. My heart faints within me. You heard that verse before? Um, What's he saying there? Because if I just said, I know that my Redeemer lives, all you'd say, Amen. But that comes in the context of his resolve and accusation that God is his enemy. God is persecuting him. God is is harming him without cause. So what does he mean? We need to unpack this quickly here. And I gave you lots of information here. This is a very popular verse, so I gave you lots of exegetical information just so you have it in case it's interesting to you. But we need it to understand the verse. First of all, Redeemer, many of you will recognize that. That's the same. It's actually a participle. Uh, It's from the main verb in Hebrew that talks about um, someone who would go and redeem a relative. You guys read Esther? Okay, Boaz comes in. What does he do at the end of the book? What's he do? He redeems Ruth, right? Why, why did he have to do that? Okay, she was in his family. He, he was the closest relative, and the Levitical code had a whole system for how you figured out who was next in line. But what had happened to Ruth's husband? He died. And in order to preserve his family, and really to preserve the honor of the family... The, the next of kin, a relative, would come in, marry the widow, and they would have children, and that would preserve the family line. That's one instance of what a redeemer would do in Scripture. And I gave you just a few examples here, because I don't know about you, when I hear redeemer, I think freed from the bondage of sin. 
That's what I think. Because that is the focus of the New Testament word redeemer most of the time. Okay? But that's not always what it means. It can mean uh, the redeemer refers to the person responsible for aiding extended family members who are in danger, in danger from slavery, and that's the main metaphor that the New Testament picks up on. Because the New Testament says, hey, you know who we were in slavery to? Sin. And we needed a redeemer to buy us back out of sin, to free us from the bonds of sin. And that's where the New Testament metaphor comes from there. But it also refers in the Old Testament to danger of debt. If there was somebody in great debt, you would have a redeemer come, uh, a next of kin who would help you with that debt. Or if somebody had been unjustly killed, the redeemer would go and avenge the blood of the person killed. So in this case, this is more of an avenger here. Okay, Or widowed. If someone was widowed, uh, the widow would be redeemed. And of course, that's the one we're probably most familiar with in the book of Ruth. Okay, so that's the background to this this word. Goel is is the word uh, from Gaal, the the verb uh, to redeem in uh, in Hebrew. Um, now Job designates God as his redeemer. He doesn't come out and say that. He doesn't say in verse twenty five, God is my redeemer. But look at verse twenty six. Look at verse twenty six. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Okay. So I think verse 26 helps us interpret who the Redeemer is in verse 25. Okay, And I take that with most commentators that the Redeemer in 25 is God himself. Okay, So God, Job identifies God as his Redeemer. He sees God as someone who will plead his case on his behalf. In this context, Redeemer does not mean free me from the power of sin. It means an advocate, a courtroom witness who will come and give the determining testimony that will free the client of all charges and lead to a pronouncement of not guilty. That's what's being emphasized here. It's a legal situation. So when Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, what he's saying is, I know God's up there, he's not answering me, but I know he's up there, And my hope is that one day God will sit on the witness stand, he will declare that I really am innocent, and all all the charges against me will be dropped. I'll be declared not guilty. That's the picture here. And the problem is, if you're like me, every time I've heard this verse in my life, that's not usually what it means. Usually this is a verse that we say, I know that my Redeemer lives. See, Job hoped in God, and he was hoping in salvation for God, And, and and. I don't know about you, but his hope is not in the Lord in the right way right now. It's not. It seems to me, though, Keith, that he's turning the corner. Well, well, yeah, and you can take it like that, but if you read the rest of the chapter, you go... Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. 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 Well, I, and I, yeah, I agree with you on that definitely, and I agree with you that he is saying. I'll tell you what he is saying. That's good. Ultimately, what he is saying is that God's going to do the right thing. 
his hope, his trust is that God will ultimately do the right thing. And that, that is true. But, but here, here's the problem. And I know, I know you guys aren't going to like this, but here's the problem. Everything in this chapter leads up to this verse. And the whole metaphor, the whole scene is my hope is bringing God to court so that I can plead my case against him. He will see, he himself, according to this verse, he himself will go to the witness stand and say, you know what, I got it wrong. Job really is innocent. And he will give the final verdict. And then he will change seats, go to the judge chair and pronounce him not guilty. Okay, that that's the picture here, and I, I know that's not the picture that's typically in our mind when we read this first. Yes. To me, he's he's looking at a redeemer that will prove that he's innocent. Yes. We're looking to a redeemer because we know we're guilty. I'm glad you said that because we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Okay, stay with me here. Okay, Job designates God as his redeemer. Living emphasizes that, and I love what the commentator says here. So I just quoted it, John Hartley, in his commentary. Even if he should die, his Redeemer will survive him and be able to restore, I think it's like the honor of, what does it say? Restore his honor. Okay. At the last refers to the day when God will vindicate Job and bring his case to a close. This is an event that Job envisions occurring before his death. I've told you this before. My understanding of what Job says is he does not have a perspective on the resurrection or heaven or the afterlife. Most, most of the time, and I think probably all the time, Job seems to indicate that his only hope is to be vindicated in this life. That's his hope. And he's saying here, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at, at last he will take his stand on the earth. That actually means, uh, I, I explained the legal background there, take his stand is a legal testimony in court. On the earth, it actually literally is in the dust and... Um, Sometimes it's translated earth. I actually like it in the dust because where's Job? Where is he? He's outside the city wall in the trash heap. He's in the dust as we're speaking. And God's, and Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. I know he's up there. I know one day he will come down here and he will stand right here and pronounce me innocent. In the dust. Even after my skin is destroyed, that refers to his body ailments, and we know that because he said the same thing, or actually something very similar, back in verse 20. Okay, He's talking about very similar language there. And the last thing he says is, From my flesh I shall see God. This is Job. Now this is very important. This is the most important part. Okay, That is Job's conviction that God will come out of hiding and that he will see him before he dies. And that's... That's the faith. That's the trust. That's the hope that he has. That God will do that. Okay. Yes, sir. Verse 20 says, Right. Destroyed is actually not a good translation, and that's why that's why it makes it sound like he's dead, but he's not. It actually means something more like my 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 flesh is beginning to fall off. I think it literally is cut off, but it's actually a description of his of the disease he has. It's not saying he's dead and in the grave, okay? Which is you can maybe misunderstand that on the basis of how the 
the NASB translators have translated it there. Okay, Very quickly, let's look at this. These verses seem to indicate Job's conviction that God will eventually reveal himself to Job and allow his case to be brought against him. Furthermore, God will take the witness stand in the courtroom, redeem Job by testifying of his innocence, and finally vindicate Job in announcing an innocent verdict. I think that's what he's saying. And I think furthermore that that understanding fits the context best. And it is hard because he does ping around and we see faith and we see depression. We see anger and we see hope. And, but I, I think this verse, I think these verses are understood best in light of the whole chapter. And that's what we see. Now, in a positive sense, these verses indicate Job's expectation that God will eventually do the right thing. He, it's, like, it's like he knows in his heart God is just. This is one of those, and I wish we had time to develop this, this is one of those deals where you see the tension in Job's heart opened up. It's like he's saying, God's doing the wrong thing, but then he cries out and says, but I know he's just. I know he'll do the right thing eventually. This is one of those moments. We've seen it before. This is one of those moments, very honest moments in Scripture, where the theology we know and the experience of our life collide. You ever had one of those experiences? Okay. And what we're seeing is a man wrestling with that. I know my Redeemer lives. I know He is just. But we've just had chapter after chapter after chapter, as recently as a few verses ago, saying, He's not. And we appreciate the honesty of this man wrestling with what he knows and what his experience seems to be telling him. Now, why am I making a big deal of that? First of all, that's where we live, isn't it? That's where we live. And this is all heading toward a resolution. Okay? This is going somewhere. And you've got to keep tracking with Job here. Okay? On the positive side, he does affirm that God is just, that he will do the right thing eventually. On the negative side, where's Job's hope? Really, listen, really listen to Job. Where is his hope really? It's in his innocence. It's in his innocence. Now, Dee said something very important a minute ago. And will you indulge me for two minutes here? Um, here's, <laughs> here's Job's hope. That God's going to come and God's going to take the witness stand. Okay? And his, Job's hope is that as God does this, God will testify of his innocence. Okay? And pronounce him not guilty. That's the picture here. Okay? Turning your Bible to 1 John chapter 1, please. Quickly. We're almost we're out, we're out of time, but I, I gotta I gotta pull this closed here. 1 John chapter 2. You know, the best way to translate that word redeemer in that context is advocate.
follow me. Stay with me, okay? Stay with me. Look at 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Interesting. That's the same legal picture. It's a different word, but it's the same person legally. An advocate. Who is the advocate that we have if we sin? Jesus Christ, what's his title? The one who always does what is right. Do you see that? Job thought that God being his advocate meant that he was righteous and God would agree with him. The biblical gospel says Jesus is the advocate and it's his righteousness imputed to the sinner, which is the basis for God saying he's not guilty. Do you see that? What Job has wrong in his theology is the gospel. His view is that God comes and says, Job's right, I'm wrong, you're not guilty. The gospel says, I'm wrong, Jesus comes in my place, and because he is righteous, and that righteousness gets imputed to me, he pronounces me not guilty on the basis of Christ's work. That's why this is a big deal. Because Job's hope is not in God in the right way. His ultimate hope is really in himself. The biblical gospel says, my hope is built on nothing less but and righteousness. You got it. We'll talk about this more next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you that our hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust in anything else but wholly and completely depend on him. Father, it's so easy to take this familiar verse in Job and make it say what we want it to say. But this is a very honest book. This book exposes what most of us do. And if we're honest... We come to you not hoping in Christ's righteousness, but so often we come to you wanting to argue with you about our own righteousness. And I thank you, Lord, that you did preserve Job's life and his words so that we might see um, that Christ and his righteousness are our only hope. He is our advocate because he is righteous And we thank you, Lord, that his righteousness can be deposited into our account when we repent and believe in him. Father, um, in in the brevity of these last few minutes, I pray that you would take what your word has shown us and you would work in our hearts that our hope would not be in ourself, but would be holy and completely in Christ our Savior. As we turn to worship now to the service, even as we celebrate communion. May that be the song of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name.